you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 15. I do like that second verse, and I think I started to sing it anyway, even though I told you not to. We're working our way through the book of Romans, and we've arrived here at chapter 15, and we're in the section of Romans, which is 12 to the end, which is largely dealing with how the gospel begins to show up in our lives, how we respond to God's grace. God's grace is sufficient for all our needs to answer our our guilt of sin, to answer our slavery to sin, to answer the shame that sin has caused by God's accepting us, uh, clothing us in righteousness, and giving us power from heaven by His Spirit. And now, knowing those things, we respond, and the opening words of chapter 12 say that we live as a living sacrifice. Uh, Martin Luther said that there's a, a great deal of what he called theologians of glory. Theologians of glory were those who anticipated the triumph but are anticipating it too quickly. Who are living as though they're kings now when we're meant to be servants. And he says what we really need are theologians of the cross in which uh, we would learn how to live out the cross in the lives of the world. And Romans 15 applies that thought, the cross, and and following Christ to the life of believers together. Particularly applies it to the places where you and I disagree with how we ought to work out the life of faith. Where we have some disagreements, particularly in those areas where God's given us freedom to work those things out. For us to apply the cross and to live that way. We're going to read the first 13 verses before we read. Let's pray for God's blessing on His Word. Father, again, we approach You with humble hearts, knowing that we are incapable of rescuing ourselves, of of producing faith, of generating repentance. Only Your Spirit can work and do that in us. So we pray, send Your Spirit that we might see Your Word, understand it, and respond faithfully to it. And by doing the work in us, you would change us eternally and you would make your name great here. For we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 15, verse 1. This is God's Word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, 
even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is God's Word. It is completely true and it is utterly trustworthy. If you ever see in Reader's Digest, they have those little excerpts where people send in stories from real life. And one of them was a story of uh, a small production company that had hired a consultant to try to make them more efficient. And the consultant came in and wanted the first thing that he recommended was to coach the shop a little to really stick to the engineer's procedures. So he gathered them all together and explained the importance of sticking to the procedures the engineers had sent to the shop. And, and, he, and he gave an analogy to try to help them all buy in. He says, imagine you were on the Titanic and you found yourself in the lifeboat and it was dark and hazy and cold and which way would you row? Now imagine the same scenario. Had been on the Titanic, you're in the lifeboat, it's dark and hazy, but the navigator of the ship is with you. Which way would you row? You'd go the way he told you to go. And the crowd seemed to nod and murmur agreement until one person, sort of toward the back, says, well, you know, he already hit one iceberg. The competence of the one who leads you really matters. The topic in this passage of Scripture, as in chapter 14, is how we relate in the church, particularly on matters of freedom, places where God has given us freedom to work it out, and we kind of disagree. We come to different thoughts. And he says there's two categories that come up. There's what he calls the strong and the weak. It's important you understand what Paul means by the strong and the weak. The strong are those who know and experience and enjoy the freedom God has given them to work out their salvation to wrestle with the factors of life about which the Scriptures don't speak clearly and to do so with the favor of God and they enjoy doing so. He talked about those who were in the church in Rome who felt free to eat meat or free to ignore the old Jewish festival days. So the, the weak were the ones who couldn't enjoy that freedom, who felt confined either by their upbringing or by some other cultural uh, attachment that had been carried with them into their Christianity. If they had grown up all their life in a Jewish home and been told you can't eat the unclean meat, they still couldn't because it, it made them feel guilty and they felt like they were dishonoring God and, and so they needed to refuse. Or, or you have those who remembered the festivals and, and how much they meant to them. And they felt like they were dishonoring God if they didn't keep those special holy days in their own household now. And, and, and because they didn't want to dishonor God, they didn't enjoy the freedom that God had given them in those matters. Paul calls them the weak because their consciences were not informed. Sinclair Ferguson says, I'd like to point out that those who are weak would also say of themselves, I have a strong conscience. My conscience is strong. That's why I can't eat meat. My conscience is strong. That's why I can't skip those holidays. And the truth is, when we talk about these categories, the strong and the weak, where do you put yourself? I imagine most of us put ourselves in the strong. If we thought we were weak, we might change it. We might say, no, I've got this wrong. I can learn. 
we tend to think the way we're doing it is the strong. Now I want to give you two thoughts on that as we're entering into what Paul's going to say in Romans 15. Uh, Here's the, the first one. This is a really vital practice for us to work out our salvation and and to figure out how we can live with each other when we might disagree and and, and, and feel some tension among each other. It's very important because Jesus said this, they will know, meaning the world will know, you are my disciples by your love for one another. And, And so if something disrupts our love, these differences, then it hurts our recognition as disciples. Or to put it even more strongly, in John 17, Jesus prays, that you and I and the church, we would be one, even as the Father and the Son are one, so that the world may know you, Father, sent me, says Jesus. That is to say, by our unity in the faith, by our love for one another, Jesus says that's how the gospel will be validated to the world. In other words, an authentic gospel ministry has this loving commitment among those who are together. That we are bonded together and that love overcomes these differences. That's what is being said. And so it's very vital that we know how to do this. Our unity is what makes the preaching effective. If we don't love one another, it does not matter if Charles Spurgeon or Augustine or any of the great preachers, if Calvin himself, if, if Paul were here and we didn't love one another, it would undo the witness that we say. It's very important. The second thing is, we know that love is important. There's two huge temptations. As we watch other people parent differently, dress differently for worship, practice this you know, way we live out our faith, Practice our recreation. And these things, as we practice them differently, the temptation for us is to say, that's not how I do it. And then we attach two opinions. You are wrong, and therefore I condemn you. You're not honoring God by the way you're doing things. You do it different than I do. And so I judge you wrong, and I condemn. Or, I look at you and I say, oh, you're doing it differently, but your opinion doesn't matter. And then I treat you with condescension. So we condemn or condescend. And those two things break love apart. It's very hard to love someone who is condemning you. It's very hard to love someone who treats you with condescension. It's very hard to love someone that you are condemning. It's very hard to love someone toward whom you look with condescension. These things tear apart love. So how do we do it? Well... We need a navigator who knows these nasty icebergs of condemnation and condescension and knows how to navigate through them. And Paul tells us that the navigator is Jesus, that he becomes an example for us. So I want to go through, and I'm going to do it pretty quickly, three places we see him as an example that we can practice in our relationships in these areas. The first one. You see it in verse 2. Actually, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us 
please his neighbor for his good to build him up. The first way we imitate Jesus is we don't please ourselves. We show deference to others. Here's the way that we tend to please ourselves. It looks like consumers. When our sort of consumer mindset comes into the way we do church, we're trying to please ourselves. Here's what it looks like. You go to your favorite restaurant. And the reason you like that restaurant is because the food's good, the prices are right, the people who work there treat you well. You know, I'd just be, this isn't an advertisement, but I like going to Chick-fil-A because I don't think any other fast food place treats me as well as those folks do. It's just, it's, it's stunning. And across the board, it seems to happen. And so that little piece of, of, of welcoming that they do, whatever it is, I, don't, I, can't, I can't quantify it, but I, I just feel more respected there. And so that appeals to me, and that gives it the, the win over other restaurants when I have the choice. Well, we do the same thing in the church. You know, I'm, I'm gonna, I like going to that church because I like their music. I, I like the people. I like the way they do things. I like their programs. I just kind of feel like it fits me. And what Paul is saying is that's the, almost the opposite attitude we ought to bring into the church. Instead of coming in and saying, does this fit? We have to say, how can I please the people who are sitting around? How can I encourage them? How can I build them up? Now, God is gracious. He wants to give you good things. And so I hope that your experience at this church, and, and, and for those who are watching on television, I hope your experience at your church is that you are fed and nourished and you receive a lot. But instead of going in and saying, what can I get? You want to go in and say, how can I please my neighbor? That, that's the way Jesus is. There was a, a woman who went to a church in Maryland and and the pastor of the church was named Eugene Peterson. Now, Eugene Peterson is, is a, a pastor that I, I like a lot because his thoughts on ministry are something pretty simple. Uh, the way you minister to people is you love them, you pray with them and for them, and you teach them the Bible, and then they work things out. And I think that's right. And so this woman comes in and she says, I, I've just moved to the area and I'm looking for a church and I'd like to know what programs you have for, for youth, for like my son. Eugene Peterson said, well, we don't really have that much. I'll just be honest with you. We, and he went through his philosophy of ministry. We like to, to preach the Bible and pray with people and love them. That's really what we do. But I tell you what, if you'll come to my church, I'll try to help you love programs less. I'll try to help you learn to please your neighbor instead of yourself. Instead of come as a consumer, it becomes necessary. According to what Paul is saying, as we imitate Christ, to shape our ministries by the people around us, by their needs. How do we encourage those? How do we bear with the weakness of those who are weak? How do we bear with the failings of those who fail around us? How do we uphold them that's the questions we want to ask, and that's how we want to shape our church ministries. We don't want to say, here are the things that we do, if that helps you. We want to say, what do you need, and how can I bring the gospel to bear on you? 
the hard part about this is is that hurts some of our sort of memories and reminiscences. I remember as a kid how God taught me this thing through this particular ministry and now I want to see that ministry go on because I want kids to have the same experience I had. But that's the that's not the way it works. The way it works is we say, how can I please this person? How can I encourage them? How can I lift them up? What do they need? And then I shape my ministry for them. He gives us Jesus' example. Verse 3, For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. What does that mean? It talks about Jesus fulfilling Psalm 69. And when He came to fulfill Psalm 69, He had to leave heaven and walk in, in sandals. He had to get His feet dirty and get tired and live in a body. He had to abandon the worship of angels for the insults of men. For the very ones who were opposed to God became opposed to Him. And the reproaches of those who had reproached God, who had insulted God, now insulted Him to the point they were ready to execute Him. Let's kill Him. Well, by whatever means we need to. He said, that's the way I'm going to go. And He did so because you and I were weak. He bears and upholds and encourages you in your weakness and your failings. So He did that for you. And now He's saying, as you look and see what Christ gave up and what He had to bear, can you not give up your preferences for each other? As you look at Christ and what He gave up, not pleasing Himself, but pleasing you, can you not give up your preferences to please someone else? Now, the result is praise to God. Look what He says. Verse 4, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scriptures we uh, might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. God is glorified. God is glorified when we defer to one another. When we set aside our preferences in order to encourage another person. Here's the challenge. I want you to look for a way to encourage someone else in the church. Let's just start there. Make a list if you need to. Brainstorm whatever it takes. Do something that says, how am I going to go and encourage someone else? Particularly, how can I set aside something that I want in order to encourage someone else? What, what, what can I give up? My time? M- my freedom? My comforts? My style of ministry that I like? Can I set that aside in order to love someone else? And here's the result. It's praise to God. Uh, have you ever... You've, you've, you've done this, I know. You've been to a house where there's a lot of kids and the kids are are in there and they're, and they're playing a game together across the ages. They're playing together and they're in harmony and they're playing sweetly and there's laughter. And you're like, this is a sweet place. Come back in an hour. And then there's some tension and there's some fighting and there's some, you know, they, they, they're bickering. And you're like, okay, there's a lot of tension here and it doesn't feel good. All right, Jesus is saying, let the church be the first one. 
let's set aside our preferences and learn how to, well, play together. For Jesus' sake. Alright, second one. We welcome each other. Verse 7. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. If you want to think about what the church looks like, I want to give you an image. The image is imagine a really tight-knit circle where everybody is gathered together shoulder to shoulder. They're supporting one another when one cries, the others weep with them. When one is joyful, the others are joyful with them. They're shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, walking through life in a very tight-knit circle where they're supporting each other. Now, when I tell that image... You have a, a picture in your head, I think. Probably most of you have the image of everybody facing in. I want you to change it. Have everybody facing out. We're shoulder to shoulder. We're together in all things. But we're always looking out for the person who needs our group. We're always saying, how can I squeeze someone else into my circle? And I've got to be looking at so So that's the image of the church. I want you to carry with you. We're a tight-knit, bonded-together circle facing out, saying, who's welcome in? You. You are welcome in. It's important in practical ways that we welcome people who show up in the church. Say hi, shake their hand, know their name. You know, those very most basic things that's very important, but it's not enough. You want to welcome someone, you must receive them. You learn to integrate them. You learn to say, you don't just get to have the smile when you show up, but you become a part of our life. I want to know who you are. I want to know what makes you tick. I want you bonded with us. And this doesn't come passively. It requires work. It requires us looking out and saying, Who's outside? How can we bring them in? And what do I have to give up to do it? It requires making people feel connected to the church. All right, I'm going to give you a radical idea to practice this. This is, some of you are going to be like, I don't know about this. This is the crazy idea of the day. Instead of thinking about where you, you know, your pew, come in and say, when you get here, where do I need to sit? Who needs me? Instead of thinking, this is my spot, you come in and you say, who's here? And who needs someone to sit next to them? And a lot of you are like, I don't know, that's crazy. But what if we were to do that? What if we were to say, I'm going to come in and instead of being where I'm comfortable, I'm going to go and sit next to someone who has a need. And I want to put my arm around them and say, we're in this together. To welcome and receive someone. Alright, if you're uncomfortable changing pews, how about this? Emails, text messages, encouragements on Facebook. Those are easy. Anybody can do them. It takes a few seconds. Uh, if you are more traditional, you could send a card. They have stamps. It still works. The post office is open for all of you who are younger than I am. Uh, if you go to a Christian bookstore, a good one, you can find the letters of John Newton, a pastor, who wrote letters to his congregation. And when you read those letters, you'll weep 
because of his advice, of his care, penned into words. And you've got to think, man, I wish I had a pastor like that. That's what you'll think. Because he encouraged his people. What I'm telling you is it doesn't have to be the pastor. You have the power of the gospel in your own words. Welcome one another. Gospel ministry happens when preaching happens and we wrestle with the Scriptures, but then we take it from here into our lives and practice it with each other and discuss it and work it out. I can only give you general applications. I can say email. You've got to say, who should I email? What should I say in the email? Those are things we must work out and you can work them out together and that's when it takes real roots. If you want to think of it this way, Gospel ministry is, it, it, the preaching is like, uh, well, an iceberg. Since I'm using icebergs today. It's like an iceberg. The preaching is the, the tip that sticks above the water. But the gospel ministry is all of the relationships in which you practice and discuss and work out what those sermons and the scriptures mean in your ordinary Tuesdays. I do announcements on the morning and I read them and we'll read them again tonight we'll try to keep those things in front of you but I want to tell you what will work always better if you will call someone and say come with me come with me to what we're doing come to my house come have coffee come with me I've invited you from the front to go to Palmer home and some of you are like I'll probably go I don't know but if you'll say to someone come with me they'll come most of the time it's much more powerful And so, Jesus is the example of welcoming here. And He shows you that in those quotations from the Old Testament. I will praise Your name among the Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles will hope. Paul's quoting the Old Testament saying, you Israelites should have known the Gentiles were coming in. Jesus came to welcome even the Gentiles. And, you know, you and I go, yeah, But the Jews would have said, that's amazing. For us, it's like this. Jesus came to welcome the drug dealer. Jesus came to welcome the, well, for this crowd, the Democrat. Jesus came to welcome anybody who will come. And and, and he did it this way. That first quote in verse 9 is from 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is what the Jews called the former pro- one of the former prophets. In verse 10, he quotes from Deuteronomy, that's Moses. In verse 11, he quotes from the Psalms, which was the poetic books summarized with the word Psalms when the Jews spoke about them. In verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah, a latter prophet. And if the scriptures were going to t- if the Jews were going to talk about the Old Testament and say, "Hey, what's in the Old Testament?" they go, "Former prophets, latter prophets, Psalms, and Moses." And so he took chunks from every part of the Old Testament and he said, listen, from every part of the Old Testament to his testimony, Jesus came to welcome the Gentiles. Jesus came to welcome the unwelcomed. Now you welcome one another looking at Christ. The last thing, and I promise to be very brief. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Jesus made Himself a servant. The ambition that most of us have in life is to get where I can employ or tell people what to do so I don't have to do the work 
mean. The closest I'm going to get is having children. I can get to tell you guys what to do. That's the ambition we have in life. But Jesus turns that on its head. He came to serve, to look around at the needs, and to take care of them. You know, today we used to call them waiters and waitresses. Now we call them servers. You ever know how you go and you go to a restaurant and if you're at home, you serve yourself. I'm thirsty, I go to the kitchen, I get a drink, and I come back. At a restaurant, they frown on that. They don't want you to go to the kitchen and get your own drink. They want to serve you. So you have to wait until they notice your need and meet it. Jesus came to serve you. He knows your need and He met it. He humbled Himself to serve the needy, both Jew and Gentile, both strong and weak, to please those who needed pleasing and encouragement to receive those who were otherwise unwelcome. And now, He's given this ministry to you. The very things He was doing, welcoming the unwelcoming, uh, unwelcomed, uh, to pleasing those who were weak and caring for those who were needy, He's given that ministry to you so that you and I can experience in our actual existence the ministry of Jesus through one another. That is to say, here's what it should feel like in the church. You should feel welcomed. You should feel received. You should feel pleased by other people who are caring for your needs, even when you don't care. That's what it should feel like because here are people who looked at Jesus and said, I want everybody to feel this. But here's the even better part, the stronger part. This is the way Jesus treats you now. Jesus has welcomed you when you were needy. He has received you when you were needy. You've already got that. He has served you. Jesus became your servant to meet your needs. Jesus chose not to please Himself, but to please you when you were weak, when you were a rebel, to encourage you, to lift you up. And as you then practice those things, as you serve the people around you, what you discover is you get to experience Jesus living that life He's lived for you through you. And so you experience it. This is the way you will know Jesus. You will receive Him. Alright, let's put it in practical terms. I told you about Eugene Peterson. I told the woman, if you come to my church, I'll try to help you love programs less. Here's what it looks like, he says. In church last Sunday, there was a couple in front of us with two bratty kids. Two pews behind us, there was another couple with their two bratty kids making a lot of noise. And it was mostly an older congregation, so these people were set in their ways. The kids have been gone, their kids have been gone a long time, and so it wasn't a very nice service. It just wasn't very pleasant worship. But afterwards, I saw a half dozen of these elderly people come up and put their arms around the mother, touch the kids, sympathize. They could have been irritated. Now, why do people go to a church like that when they can go to a church that has a nursery or is air-conditioned and all the rest? His answer is, well, because they're Lutherans. They don't mind being miserable. At this same church, they welcomed recently a young woman with a baby, a three-year-old boy. The children were baptized a few weeks ago, but there was no man with her. She's never been married. Each of the kids was from a different father. She shows up at the church and wants her children baptized. She's a Christian and wants to follow in the Christian way. So the couple 
a couple from the church acted as godparents, and now there are three or four couples in the church who every Sunday try to get together with her. Now, where's the joy in that church? They're full of joy and faithfulness and obedience and care. And then somebody said, well, some people would argue it's important to have a worship service in which people feel comfortable so they can hear the gospel. His response, I think they're wrong. Take the story I told you about the family in the front of us on Sunday. Nobody was comfortable. The whole church was miserable. And yet they might have experienced more gospel in going up and putting their arms around that poor mother who was embarrassed to death. I think if you learn to love each other like Jesus has loved you, if you will take hold of that and practice it, though it feels uncomfortable, and though it is awkward, and though it is difficult, I think you will get more gospel than you have ever gotten. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us receive your word and to be transformed by it. And above all, we pray that as we are transformed, we would know Jesus. Or really, what we really want is to know Jesus and then be transformed by knowing Him. We want to know how He serves us. We want to know how He welcomes us. We want to know how He didn't please Himself, but lifted us up, encouraged us, and pleased us. And then to, in turn, give the very same blessing to everyone who's around us. For Jesus is worthy. And we pray in His name. Amen.